Well, hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of Fully Automated, an Occupy IR Theory podcast. With the inauguration of Joe Biden just around the corner, many are pondering what new approaches his team might bring to U.S. foreign policy. Despite President Trump's penchant for bombast and bellicose rhetoric, it can't be gainsaid that his reign has been more or less dovish in comparison to those of his more recent predecessors. One huge exception to this rule, however, has been that of Iran. Early in 2020, US forces assassinated the Iranian general Qassem Soleimani. Then in November 2020, we saw the assassination of military scientist Mossad Farizeh, a hit apparently greenlit by Trump himself. In response to this latest provocation, the Iranian parliament introduced a law that will require Biden to renew the Iranian nuclear deal, or the JCPOA, effectively within a month of taking office. This law also requires Iran to produce at least 120 kilograms of 20% enriched uranium annually. What does it all mean? On the one hand, as former UNSCOM inspector Scott Ritter has been arguing, Iran's response has been remarkably calm. The amount of higher enriched fuel to be produced is still very low, arguably not for military purposes, and is in conformity, I quote, with the limits prescribed under the JCPOA. Nevertheless, as Ryan Grimm reports recently, even on the way out the door, the Trump administration seems to have been at least discussing the potential for military strikes against Iran. So to discuss the current situation and the release of their new co-authored book, Understanding and Explaining the Iranian Nuclear Crisis, Theoretical Approaches, our guests for this episode are doctors Hal Tagma and Paul Lenzi Jr., Tagma is assistant professor at the Department of Politics and International Affairs at Northern Arizona University, where he teaches Middle Eastern politics, the political economy of international conflict, and critical approaches to international relations theory. Lenzi Jr. is senior lecturer in politics, also at Northern Arizona University. He teaches international relations and comparative politics with a focus on civil military relations and Middle Eastern politics. So this is a rich book, which I think will appeal both to IR theorists and those looking to gain a sense of the debates around US-Iran relations. On the one hand, it contains a rich meta-commentary on contemporary IR and the theoretical possibilities uh, it contains for dialogue between its various theoretical paradigms. Second, it's a very detailed and I think reasoned analysis of the current state of US-Iran relations and the idea that there is a, in scare quotes, crisis, and what it even means to speak of crisis. Before we get started, however, I just want to say that the authors are here making strong claims in the book um, in favor of what they term eclectic pluralism. And they are critical of the idea that there is only one truth or one story to be told about international relations. Now, that might seem to imply that they see all truths in IR as somehow equal or equivalent. Nevertheless, as you'll hear, the book doesn't hesitate to land some punches. In the chapter on Marxism and world systems theory, for example, they write that from the perspective of Marxism, and I quote, modern academic realism is a superstructural tool that legitimizes and naturalizes the exploitative and violent politico-economic order of global capitalism. 
Modern academic realism is not outside theory, nor is it timeless wisdom. Instead, realism is caught up in constructing the violent capitalist world system that it is hopelessly trying to make sense of. So with that critical spirit in mind, then, here is Tagma and Lindsay to discuss their new book, Understanding and Explaining the Iranian Nuclear Crisis, Theoretical Approaches. So welcome to the show, uh, Hal Tagma and Paul Lenza. You're here with us today to discuss your uh, new book, Understanding and Explaining the Iranian Nuclear Crisis. Crisis is in scare quotes, theoretical approaches. I love the title of this book. I like the provocation of crisis being in scare quotes. Um, we're going to have a great conversation today, I think. Uh, it's a book that I think will be a provocation for both uh, international relations theorists and also I think people just looking to have a strong empirical source for uh, the various debates that have happened in and around US-Iran relations. That said, I, as you can tell, I'm interested in why you've put crisis in scare quotes. So maybe we can just start with that. I, I mean, to me, honestly, picking up any uh, American newspaper or tuning into any cable news TV station, you're, you're, you're just going to find the word crisis used in quite a prolific manner. Can you tell me a little bit about the background for this project, how it came together, and then specifically why you have decided to focus so much of your effort here on problematizing the concept of crisis, the way the notion of crisis is used to describe the relationship between Iran and the United States. Maybe we can get you both to chime in here. Hal, you'll go first, maybe Paul then right afterwards. Yeah, sure. Thank you, Nick, for having us. Uh, the reason uh, why we wanted to write a book was uh, during the course of uh, the last decade, uh, we've uh, been reviewing uh, some of the mainstream accounts of uh, the relations between the United States and Iran, whether it's in the media, uh, reports produced by think tanks, and so on. And we came to realize that uh, there's uh, several different perspectives, uh, different people living in different countries on right. different sides of the political aisle, having their diverging views and interests. And we wanted to provide an academic perspective on the, on the uh, issue of the Iranian nuclear dispute. And uh, we, uh, we, we saw that there was a deficit uh, in the academic uh, works on this, uh, uh, on this important topic. That is not to say there's some uh, valuable scholars. Uh, recent dissertations have been published uh, coming from an acad academic angle. But what we wanted to do was to uh, provide a, a solid academic view uh, from the perspective of international relations theories to come to a relatively more uh, neutral, impartial, objective perspective that is not caught up in the everyday uh, empirical realities of which side said what. So that was the overall reason that we thought that an academic approach uh, could supplement the existing one. And uh, we've been we've been friends for four years uh, since Hal came to uh, NAU, mm. uh, and we found as we got to know each other that we had a lot of similar 
uh, interests in, you know, concerning teaching, but also research uh, within the broader Middle East region. And so uh, the book and working on the book developed literally over beers uh, at our local pub, uh, deciding that, uh, you know, it would be useful to, uh, you know, collaborate on an issue that we were both uh, very interested in. So tell me then about uh, this crisis angle, because uh, I, I, I am uh, I think it'll be important for the listener as we proceed here to to understand that, you know, you guys have some concerns about the use of this word, right? Well, in uh, since 1979, in the Iranian Revolution, uh, Washington, uh, D.C. and the think tank community uh, have used the term crisis and have been very anti-Iran. Uh, and I think that's colored their perception of mm-hmm. the country and how uh, the United States and the foreign policy community have dealt uh, with Iran. And how? feel free to jump in. Yeah, uh, uh, on similar lines, uh, we uh, critically approach the term crisis, which is why it's in scare codes. Um, as far as political science uh, is concerned, uh, it doesn't seem as if it's a crisis in the sense of a Cuban missile crisis, where something is... The contention is elevated beyond normal politics, which has to deal, uh, which has to be dealt with urgency, necessity, and uh, with a certain speed that is characteristic of what a crisis means, including military options. But that is not uh, that does not seem to be the case that we are examining, though we put it in, in scare quotes precisely for the reason, because it is portrayed as such, and we would want to differentiate ourselves from the. Uh, uh, from uh, uh, accounts that are not as academic. Gotcha, gotcha. So, guys, I, I don't know how you'll feel about this, but I, um, you know, reading this book, uh, I, I sort of felt, in a sense, there were there were two books here. Now, that won't, I think, uh, be an experience that will be unusual for uh, an international relations theorist reading to this, say an academic uh, scholar of international relations will well understand that, you know, theory and empirical data, theory, uh, theoretical arguments, empirical arguments kind of tend to blend together in our, in the way we do our research. So that's not, um, that, that, that's not something that should surprise us or, um, uh, you know, give us, give us pause, but for someone who's maybe not familiar with how this kind of work goes. I think it's important to emphasize that you're kind of grinding two different axes here, right? On the one hand, uh, you have this uh, sort of concern to make a contribution about the way we think about the world, the way we schematize or theorize our thinking about global relations or international relations. But also then uh, you have these uh, sort of um, various sort of empirical points you want to make as you lay out your argument about crisis. So just for a moment, I want to focus on the theoretical pillar, so to speak, of the book. Um, now, to there's a there's a real complexity here, and uh, unfamiliar listeners, I would encourage them to sort of like take a breath here because we we are before we get into the Iran stuff. I think just going to have a a quick sort of argument about um, so how how we how we think about social science theory. So how, maybe this is a better question for you, because I think you handled this part of the book a little more than, than Paul. Paul's voice is coming in later in the book, but one of the key claims here you're putting forward is this notion of eclectic pluralism. And I want you to tell me a little bit about why you're using this word 
And also, it seems that for you, it's it's very much a, a term that you're using to um, get us to think about the importance of bringing in as many tools from the toolbox as possible without sort of necessarily reducing e each tool to a sort of a part of your own macro strategic sort of theory that you're trying to do. There's a real sort of generosity here towards each of the theories. You're not trying to reduce them to each other. So yeah, for the unfamiliar listener, maybe who, who's not so up to depth on up to up to date, excuse me, on uh, on international relations theory, can you just talk us through this insistence of yours on pluralism as being the best way to approach international relations? Um, so let me start off by uh, saying our reason our reason for uh, employing a theoretical approach is that the uh, the political world is infinitely complex. Take the case of the. Uh, Iran dispute, there is a, a, a geostrategic slash military angle involved. There is a political economic angle involved, right. domestic politics involved, international institutions involved, and so on and so forth. So what we want to do is dissect this complex reality unfolding in front of our eyes for the past decades yes. and try to uh, uh, approach each aspect of this uh, dispute with a, a theoretical approach that seems best suited to answer some of the questions pertaining to those particular aspects. Um, so let me start off by uh, just saying what a theory means uh, in the academic sense. Uh, theories simply try to uh, simplify a very complex reality in order to better understand it, right? And in doing so, a theory and its uh, analysis does not necessarily look like what you see on the news or what you need to read on the newspaper. Uh, think of a theory like this. Uh, uh, although there is COVID right now, air travel is limited, but think that uh, you are on an airplane, right? Experiencing the reality of flying on an airplane at 33,000 feet, right? You might be in the first class enjoying a cocktail, watching the earth from your window in the economy class. Now, this is an experience and lived reality of uh, flying. Now, a theory of flight, on the other hand, does not seem like what that uh, lived and experienced reality is. A theory of flight would it can be illustrated with an airfoil, which is a cross-sectional angle of a wing, and the theory of flight would illustrate how fast-flowing air, represented by arrows being cut in half by an airfoil, lifts the aircraft up. Okay. Yeah. So human beings go through their everyday experience of their realities. Villagers in Iran might be impacted by sanctions. Soldiers and intelligence officers in the field uh, have different experiences. Diplomats might be involved in striking a deal, and then there might be an economic elite from the uh, from behind the scenes trying to steer uh, the course of action to one angle or another. Now, these are all lived and real experiences. What a theory tries to do is to try to understand and explain how all these experiences come in the way they do. So that's what a theoretical approach entails. Now, that said, uh, there are several different uh, theories in international relations. Some of them have been around for decades, some of them for centuries. And uh, what we try to do in trying to uh, advance an impartial approach to this contemporary dispute is to resort to these well-established theories in international relations uh, and try to apply them to these different aspects of the Iranian nuclear dispute. Mm -hmm. 
So, you know, maybe I can push you a little bit more on this because um, there's definitely a lot of complexity here. And, you know, a a listener who is interested in what Hal is saying right now, I mean, I would certainly encourage to pick up a copy of the book because, um, you know, uh, I can speak from experience. Um, Hal will definitely know what I'm talking about here. When, When you're thrown into the deep end of a graduate program in international relations with a heavy focus on... um, you know, social science theory, uh, such as I was as a, a certain stage in my life, you know, in, in Aberystwyth in Wales, um, you know, you're, you're, you're going to get hit with a lot of very difficult terminology, stuff that you might not have necessarily thought you'd be encountering when you decided to do, you know, a master's degree in international relations, you suddenly find yourself engaging in a lot of these meta-theoretical debates. So I just wanted to sort of maybe push a little bit more here, like, Eclectic pluralism for you is a very serious term in here. It, it carries a huge burden in your argument. And, and so for the listener at home, I mean, there's, it, it's important, I think, to flag that um, when we uh, review the recent history of social science debates, um, th- th- there's, a, there's a, a, a concern, a preoccupation, a debate uh, with the idea of incommensurability, isn't there? Right. And this is this idea, ultimately, that we live in different theoretical worlds. If you're a Marxist, you see the world fundamentally different to me if I'm a liberal or even a realist, you know. Um, So I I just wanted to sort of flag that because it is a kind of a controversial move you're making here. And I want to give it its due. You know, I want the listener at home to be aware that, you know, this is a book that's not just about Iran-U.S. relations. This is a book that's staking out a certain orientation, a certain direction, a certain claim about the way we theorize the world. And it is arguing ultimately that if you want to understand U.S.-Iran relations, if any of my students are listening to this right now, right, they will have just taken a course with me in international relations my third years uh, with me this this um, this autumn. And the, the controversy here is that you are saying that in a, in a sense, all of the theories that we look at in these classes have something to offer, have something to contribute. And that the, 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 the objective here need not necessarily to be to produce one grand theory of the world, that actually you might get more mileage if you want to sort of politically resolve the US-Iran crisis you might get more political mileage if you actually retain all these theories and the singular viewpoints they give um, can give us like multiple insights to help triangulate potential solutions for this problem. Is, is that is that a fair representation of what you're trying to say in this chapter? Yeah, that would be a fair representation. Let me take a, take a step back. Please do. That's why uh, we're and, here. Uh, yeah. To introduce some of the questions that we have in the chapters and how we got to answering those questions through the various different theories. And in doing so, in the introductory chapter, we advance our kind of overall perspective, which we call eclectic pluralism, which is a concept we we borrow from theoretical mathematics. Um, So, as I briefly mentioned, there's all these different aspects and dimensions to the Iranian nuclear dispute. Questions such as does Iran uh, have possible security related inspirations for a clandestine military orientation? Uh, which political actors within Iran have had the interest for 
to push for diplomacy or non-diplomacy? How were the international sanctions that were brought about with the international institutions applied to Iran and whether or not they produced a result? Uh, what's the uh, what's the role of global capitalism in all of this dispute? So as you can see, these are all different questions that we take up in uh, several of the uh, chapters. And in each of those chapters, we employ a particular theory that seems to us that is best suited. And that's where our eclecticism comes from to answer that question. So, for example, on the geopolitical slash military question, we employ realism, which is fundamentally a, a very different way of looking at the world that uh, that is that follows in the chapter that follows it, that looks at global capitalism having a role in this. And the perspectives that we introduce here, uh, some listeners and readers would find them to be uh, really uh, uh, more interesting than others. For example, the realist perspective, we are uh, we advance this uh, perspective that has been taught in military academies around the world. Diplomats are very well versed in this language and logic of realism, and they might find more credence in that. Now comes the next chapter, say the uh, world systems theory chapter that we advance, which argues that the so-called national interest has been perpetually hijacked by an economic elite. Now, that perspective might seem very contradictory for a mindset right. that is oriented to think through realism. So how do we kind of make these all go together? That's where we bring our uh, our concept of uh, eclectic pluralism that we advance into international relations. Now, our field, uh, political science, uh, uh, international relations is a subdiscipline of political science. And for the uh, good part of the 20th century, there were a couple of theoretical paradigms that were battling one another, most notably uh, realism, world systems, and uh, liberalism slash liberal institutionalism that all had a claim about how the world works. And each of them, uh, heralding a sovereign, sovereign flag, so to speak, says that we explain the world best, each of these theories. Now, come the 1980s, the dissolution of the Soviet Union and the Cold War and so on and so forth, the uh, the field of international relations have uh, matured into a type of pluralism where there are competing theoretical perspectives that each see the world differently. Now, in that setting, uh, some scholars, such as Katzenstein, have uh, uh, come up to come up with uh, arguments that try to advance what they call analytical eclecticism, that is to borrow pieces of each theory to offer an explanation and understanding of a particular political phenomena. But we find that uh, 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 troublesome as uh, the very different perspectives that we employ in international relations theory are, to use a technical term, incommensurable. In right. other words, the way realism sees the world is fundamentally different uh, with all its assumptions and its understandings than, for example, world systems theory or neoliberal institutionalism for that matter. So these uh, theories that some in our field try to mix and match, we uh, maintain that they are not, they can't be mixed and match, and it is best that uh, to keep them separate, but with the eclectic pluralism that we advance, all of these different paradigms and schools of thought coming together can give us a better understanding of a particular international political phenomena. 
Nick, can I add something to this? And I feel would love free if you to did, Paul. Yeah, please go and ahead. And feel 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 free to delete it uh, if Hal or you don't think it, that it fits. <laughs> but given uh, given that uh, in graduate school, it's often hard to understand where all of these different theories fit in their explanations. And obviously, as you all both know, and as uh, the listeners and readers of the book will will find out, is just as Hal mentioned, they all explain a particular aspect of the crisis. The way that I thought about it as we were developing the book is that it's a Rubik's cube, you know, and that each of these different uh, theories are a way to help you eventually get that Rubik's cube in order to where it's set up to explain yeah. uh, a particular uh, event. So I think uh, eclectic pluralism is a way to move the discipline forward yeah. where we're not we're not looking solely at one individual theory to try and explain everything because in in reality you can use each of these different theories to explain a particular aspect of a larger uh, crisis or political phenomena i'm glad you brought that up paul you know we have a kind of um a, a semi schizophrenic audience for this podcast um there's a there's a lot of sort of um I think we have a, a strong left-wing listenership. You know, um, we have a strong international relations theory listenership, and so I try to sort of make the show in a way that I can speak to both audiences and keep the interest of both. So right now, you know, we've probably got the attention of all the theory heads out there, but we might be like losing the left. And and I'm, I just want to assure the, the, those lefties at home that we got a couple of zingers coming up later. <laughs> so don't 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 turn off just yet. This is all actually adding up to something. Uh, and there's a very specific reason I, I have Paul and Hal on the show. Um, you know, there, there's a there's a conversation uh, that's about to take place here, and I, I just want to urge people to to stay on board with us. We're we're doing the theory work. We're here. We're we're um, opening up those uh, dusty theory books, as a friend of mine likes to put it, and um, you know, get getting our fingers a bit dirty here. Now, um, Paul, I was glad to hear your voice there a, a moment ago. Um, for listeners at home, uh, we've been talking uh, with Hal Tagma and Paul Lenze about their book, Understanding and Explaining the Iranian Nuclear Crisis, uh, Theoretical Approaches. Now, I, I, <clears throat> I need to tell people that, you know, when I said earlier on that this is a book, um, like two books, um, I actually mean that in two different ways. It, it is a book with a, a theory axe to grind and a book with an empirical axe to grind. But it's also in a in a in a meaningful way, I think, it, it presents itself as almost like two separate books by two separate authors. Now I I that could I think be taken as an insult by some people, but I don't think that's the way I mean it here. Um what I'm referring to, of course, is the very clear division of labor in the book, uncharacteristically for a co-edited volume, you guys actually put your own names on the separate chapters. And so we do have the first chapters of the book written by Hal, the, 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 all the chapters at the end of the book uh, written by Paul, and then they return together as a unified voice at the end for a concluding chapter. So um, I have a kind of a one-two move here. I suppose I want to maybe turn to Hal first and ask about his chapters and have that conversation. And then Paul, seeing as you're the author for the second half of the book, um, I'm going to come in and ask you about your uh, contributions and uh, and how you think those fit with Hal. So, um, Hal, maybe we'll just start with yourself. You're um, opening the book with a very detailed history 
of uh, Iran-U.S. relations, taking us from the early days of Iran's nuclear program under the Shah uh, to the point immediately after the assassination of General Qassem Soleimani earlier on this year. My God, I can't even believe that that's this year because it seems like 10 years ago already uh, in this year of coronavirus. Now, uh, there's a lot to get through here in your chapters, right? Because you've got a chapter on world systems theory. Um, your opening chapter, however, is on realism. And um, I thought that was an interesting move um, because as I know you, I uh, separately to this conversation, I, I, I know that you're not necessarily someone who has a reputation as being a realist, but you, you do a very good job of being a realist. You put on a strong realist hat in this chapter and you I think you really make that work. So I want to kind of ask you, what's the payoff of this realism chapter? You know, because we have um, in U.S. media coverage um, uh, sort of a sense that um, Iran and the United States are kind of mortal enemies, that they simply hate each other. But realism doesn't really deal with that kind of language so well. This is much more about power and strategy, the need for balance, the need for um, kind of uh, calculating a relationship between two countries that have a history of animosity, but even then sometimes will, in an odd way, cooperate on certain issues. And I think wearing your realist hat, you're able to kind of put these various empirical facets of the relationship on the table for us. So. There's critically two strands of realism you're dealing with here, defensive realism, offensive realism. I wondered maybe if I can just invite you to start there. Can you talk with us about the difference between defensive and offensive realism and then give us your account of why this distinction matters for the way we think about these carefully strategized relations between these two countries? Yeah, very interesting question. Uh, thanks for laying it out in the way you did. Uh, let me just start off uh, with uh, something that um, uh, observers who follow this dispute uh, might notice, and I'm going to build on that to advance why I advance Fire the away. realism chapter. So the the contention over uh, Iran's uh, nuclear program, uh, which really dates back to the Shah era. Uh, during uh, the Eisenhower administration when he visited the Iranian Majlis, the parliament, and uh, uh, in line with the Atoms for Peace program of the United States, uh, later on transferred uh, technology to Iran, which was a friendly regime. But then over the course of the years, the revolution kicks in and so on and so forth. The contention between the United States and, and its allies and, the, uh, and in Iran really stems from the Non-Proliferation Treaty, its interpretation, which Iran uh, is a signatory of. Uh, mm -hmm. The Non-Proliferation Treaty basically uh, is a treaty, fairly successful, uh, signed in 1968, that promises that we who hold nuclear weapons, we countries, uh, promise to get rid of them one day in the future. But all the other signatories, you also promise that I shall not pursue uh, a nuclear weapon. Now, the Article 4 of this treaty says members signing in this, this treaty, they pledge not to develop a nuclear weapon. But the Article 4 says that they retain the right to 
develop nuclear energy for peaceful purposes. Okay, that's that's an agreement. Iran agrees on it. Right. The United States agrees on it, and so on and so forth. <laughs> now, much of the Tehran's diplomatic efforts in the uh, political sphere has sought to advance arguments stemming from the right to pursue nuclear energy. On the other hand, the U.S.-led Western countries focus on the clandestine activities, some sites that were not being revealed uh, to inspectors as saying, aha, this must be a nuclear uh, weapons program, right? So there's a different interpretation on what the law means. And as it goes with any law that has diverging interests politically, uh, people have different opinions. Americans growing up uh, in their socialization process, filled with images of a dangerous Iran bent on destruction of the West as one idea, including academics and think tanks and all of that. And a similar thing could be said about Iranian observers living in Iran uh, in their socialization process regard the West as trying to destroy their country, right? Mm -hmm. So how do we get above uh, these uh, kind of biases that relate to particular national perspectives? I think realism does a fair job in trying to get outside of, let's say, a nationalistic thinking Mm -hmm. that says our country and its perspective and our national interest is right, to arrive at a fairly relatively more objective understanding of what's going on than a nationalistic perspective. Now, that's a disclaimer, a critique of realism is due in the next chapter, so hold on there. (laughs) But realism, at least, has a hands-off approach. In doing so, it says, well, the United States is a nation-state, Iran is a nation-state, they both want to survive, what's going on, right? And in doing so, I take up the realist perspective and apply it to the interests and priorities of Iran and the United States. <clears throat> While I'm doing so, I uh, I argue, and this is an important point that I want to underline so it's not taken out of context, uh, in this chapter and in this conversation, I am not saying Iran is developing a nuclear weapon, nor that it should develop one or right. would develop one, right? Uh-huh. The perspective that I'm advancing here is one known to listeners as a real politique logic here. Okay. So the logic here I'm advancing is from a relatively more objective than nationalistic perspective. A realist perspective might suggest, is there a reason or interest in Iran to develop a capability to defend itself from its perceived enemies? And in doing so, I borrow from a well-established school of thought uh, called defensive realism, particularly its structuralist version. And I, I, uh, I build upon uh, a, a literature that argues if the following conditions are met, a country might feel threatened, whether this country is Australia, Iran, Egypt, etc. Right. So the five criteria that I build on the literature is, does Iran or any other state uh, have a more powerful state in its region? Yes or no. Does other powerful states have a malign or benign tone toward it? Yes or no. Uh, are those powerful states closer to Iran or not? Yes or no. Are there significant territorial disputes? Yes or no. If a state fate is, does Iran 
face international isolation or lacks a powerful ally? Yes or no? So based on these five criteria uh, that I apply to the Iranian case, uh, we see that Iran has a reason from a real politic perspective to feel threatened by its environment, right? This is purely geopolitical. I'm not looking into the domestic politics. I'm not looking into its ideology and so on and so forth. Now that seems to be a reason as to why Iran might in the future, and I'm not saying it should or would again, might have a real politic reason as to why it might uh, use a uh, nuclear program as what people in the literature have argued as a kind of bomb in the basement or a program in the basement. That is to say, not necessarily to develop a nuclear program, a nuclear weapon, but if uh, conditions get worse, it would be uh, away from a nuclear weapon six months to a year, okay? That is a real politic logic that the school of thought that has been around for decades advances. But that doesn't explain the whole picture. If we try to exp uh, apply this very same criteria to the United States or its European allies for that matter, the defensive realist logic would not say that the US is threatened by Iran. It's thousands of miles away. Its military is in no way a serious threat to the US homeland. It doesn't have territorial disputes with uh, the United States and so on and so forth. So. It takes two to tango and to build a dispute into a crisis, right? Uh, by its very logic, many other countries have pursued nuclear uh, programs. Some of them led to nuclear weapons, but it wasn't brewed up into an international crisis in the way that it is being brewed up. So I bring in the U.S. perspective, and I try to explain why the United States uh, is so heavily involved and trying to prevent Iran from achieving, uh, from its perspective, a nuclear capability. And uh, I, I, uh, I borrow from uh, the offensive realist school of thought advanced by Mearsheimer, though himself might not specifically agree with this particular application. Mm -hmm. But his logic basically dictates that states try to be regional hegemons, meaning to be the most powerful nation state within a particular geographic region. Uh, historically, the United States has been the only country that has been a regional hegemon in North America. And his theory predicts that this regional hegemon would go into other parts of the world to prevent another regional hegemon from rising. Now that ties into uh, the, uh, the Iraq war in the sense that up until the Iraq war, the Persian Gulf had what we would call in a real politic logic, a tripolar system in which Saudi Arabia, Iran, and Iraq kind of balanced each other. With the elimination of Iraq as one of those poles, the regional realist order led to a kind of bipolarization between the Saudi Arabian allies versus Iran and its affiliates. And from the perspective of offensive realism, the United States is throwing its weight behind its Saudi allies to prevent the rise of a regional hegemony by Iran. Now, interestingly, uh, both of these logics, defensive realism and offensive realism on the applied to the United States, seems to be feeding to one another. 
In other words, each action that Iran takes to defend itself from a defensive realpolitik logic seems to spell a, a threat perception on the behalf of the United States, which we would call a security dilemma. Right? Okay, okay. And so this kind of kicks in a logic uh, that leads to the current situation that we are in from a realpolitik logic. And those are very hard to escape, right? Those security dilemmas, because each side is kind of committed to an escalation in a sense, um, where where you can't sort of trace your steps back out of it. It becomes, sometimes it's known as a prisoner's dilemma, right? Yeah, uh, it could lead to arms races. Mm -hmm. The Cold War is a classic example of this and uh, yeah. many other historical examples. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that was really, really interesting. So, um, how there's more to speak about on your section of the book i'm going to come back to you in a moment but i'm just going to switch over to paul now and ask him about his contributions because they do come from um seemingly a a, a, a different point of view altogether um i mean obviously maybe some overlap but but what's going on for you paul seems to be much more to do with building institutions their potential uses there are very real limitations, which I think you're very good at explaining. And um, you're also interested in bringing in game theory and game modeling, I think. Now, I will be the first to admit this is not my forte. So be gentle with me, baby here. OK, now, um, I think a lot of listeners are going to be specifically interested in um, the chapter that you offer where you and it's fascinating, I have to say, um, where you account for the origins and even the later demise of the JCPOA. And this is the Iran-US nuclear agreement, essentially. Okay, You're arguing here that we have to focus on not just two-level games, where we, and anyone who's, I think, taken any IR will, will immediately know what that is. It's, it's where you're not just looking at the relations between the states, but also bringing in the domestic actors. You want us to go beyond the traditional rational actor approach bring in that second level, but also even bring in um, a, a third level. So how does that move help you contextualize for us the JCPOA coming into existence and then subsequently its demise? Uh, so Nick, that's a really great question. And uh, the way that I'd like to, to answer that is by uh, talking about kind of the extension of what Hal was mentioning with uh, the different strands of realism is that the natural counterpoint to realism uh, has been neoliberal institutionalism, the role of institutions. And uh, the IAEA is one of the major institutions that has helped to prolong the nonproliferation regime uh, for uh, nuclear proliferation. And so it was useful to use that chapter to show the influence of sanctions. The nonproliferation regime's focus on the Iranian nuclear program, uh, when you examine it from the liberal institutionalist perspective uh, that we do in chapter four, it shows how cooperation and coercion take place in an interdependent world. Uh, and sanctions helped the EU, uh, the United States, and Iran get to the negotiating table to eventually sign the JCPOA. Uh, but uh, as we saw in 2018, that the nonproliferation regime would ultimately be dominated by the United States' interests. Uh, and 
Since 1979, the U.S. and EU had competing perceptions of Iran, uh, which defined their political and economic interests. And the culmination of sanctions uh, that had occurred between 2003 and 2013 uh, and the effect of these sanctions on Iran's domestic economy helped to bring Iran to the negotiating table. However, you can't just look at institutions and these domestic interests in isolation. Uh, Domestic interests, factions, and leader personalities also impacted the support of uh, international organizations within both the United States and uh, Iran and support of the IAEA or the NPT or UN sanctions. And that's why chapter five went on to discuss domestic politics of Iran. And then in chapter six, discussing three level games Uh, because chapter five's discussion of domestic politics focuses on uh, the power of Ayatollah Khamenei Mm -hmm. Uh, in the country. He's called the shots regarding the nuclear program. However, he allowed for elasticity to give institutions such as the Iranian Revolutionary Guard or the Supreme National Security Council, or even the various political factions, room to negotiate. But in the end, it was the Grand Ayatollah who made the decisions. And so our chapter's main argument in Chapter 5 is that bureaucratic politics Uh, Graham Allison's Model 3, when applied to the nuclear issue, it helps us to identify the process and the importance of various actors on a particular issue. Mm -hmm. And so the critique of bureaucratic politics regarding liberal democracies and authoritarian regimes, we found that to be valid, that bureaucratic politics models are heuristics that must be adjusted to fit the context of an authoritarian theocracy. The literature in bureaucratic politics often discusses bureaucratic politics in terms of democracies, the give and take. Uh, And so what we tried to do in Chapter 5 was apply it to an authoritarian theocracy and that the top executive has a vital role in the agenda setting. Uh, And third, politics is politics. Mm -hmm. We learn that domestic politics helps understand the multifaceted aspects of political individuals and organizations, which helps lead us to chapter six and to to answer the latter part of your question about why we wanted to use a three-level game. Putnam's famous work on the interplay of domestic and international politics is used to examine the influence of these domestic interest groups on negotiations. So the negotiations uh, between and the influence of the domestic interest groups on the leader that's one level. And then right. the leader's negotiation itself is the other level. So the two level game. We argue that the perceptions held of the opposing state by both the leader and domestic interest groups affect the development of policy positions and the advice that's given to leaders. Right. And so for the three level game in the Iranian case, we see that in the period leading up to uh, the JC uh, POA, you have in Iran, you have a conservative uh, president in Ahmadinejad. Uh, You have the presence of the United States uh, in uh, Iraq next door. And this is a part of that realpolitik thinking that Iran is the enemy. 
There's been years at this point of sanctions placed upon Iran by the United States. And Iran knows this. The Grand Ayatollah knows this. There's increasing domestic pressure within Iran that culminates in 2009 in the Green Revolution. Mm -hmm. So here's where the Grand Ayatollah has to let off some steam. Now the IRGC is becoming a powerful actor. Uh, Hamane is is fearing for his position atop of uh, the hierarchy. And so he uh, agrees that there needs to be a more moderate president. Uh, And so that's when you have Rouhani become president and you have the beginnings of this opening up. And so that's the leader and these domestic interest groups. They're aware of what the position of the United States has been within the Middle East. They're aware of these sanctions, you know, that have been placed on the country that are impacting uh, the amount of money that they're able to get from oil and natural gas. Where things change and why it becomes a three-level game is where you go from that positioning to now uh, the beginning of the talks, but then boom, from 2013 to 2015. In that two-year period, you now have, with increasing domestic pressure in the United States as a result of the Republicans winning uh, the House of Representatives, you have pressure against Obama, but Obama then wins his second term. So he's able to now not have to listen to uh, the, the pressure that's coming from Congress as much. Uh, and APAC is not able to put as much pressure on what Obama does in foreign policy, because historically in American foreign policy, there is uh, the relationship between the domestic level and the executive. But once a president wins a second term, he has much more leeway uh, in foreign policy. So now you have Rouhani in Iran, you have a second term Obama administration. This allows for uh, the opening up to begin the negotiations, first with the secret negotiations uh, in Oman. And Rouhani, although he has to listen to what Khamenei wants, Khamenei has, has given him some leeway to try and get the sanctions reduced. Okay. And so these negotiations were influenced by Obama's understanding of Iran, uh, the history of the U.S.-Iranian relationship, willing to open up and reach out uh, in the Iranian New Year, writing uh, a happy New Year message to the Iranian people, making all sorts of of, uh, diplomatic efforts to try and say that we're open to negotiations. The Iranian regime realizing that we need to get these sanctions reduced and now having an administration that was willing to discuss what uh, enrichment meant and how much the country could enrich or how much uh, of the material should be removed. So the three level game is just it's another slice, you know, as part of our eclectic uh, pluralism approach to understand the behaviors and motivations of actors within the region. Brilliant. Thank you so much. That's super useful. I, uh, I, I think anyone uh, listening to that, um, especially if they're like um, a freshman, not a freshman necessarily, but, you know, like undergraduate uh, international relations scholar, I think we'll, we'll really have find that a very useful exposition of, of how this kind of multi-level thinking 
can be useful as we try to understand the dynamics of these kinds of negotiations and processes. So um, maybe that's a good segue to thinking um, a bit more on the social science question. Now, I, I kind of flagged this earlier for you guys, and I guess I, in some ways it's a question more for how, because it goes back to uh, something we were talking about earlier on, um, eclectic pluralism. Um, you guys, uh, and again, this is, this is more Hal's chapter. I, I appreciate your, your co-signing all the chapters together, but the, the um, or at least you co-signed the book. <laughs> but um, Hal, you're not only um, an advocate of eclectic pluralism, you're also making a very strong claim that the discipline itself has, in your words, matured into a pluralist phase. Now, I just want to ask about some of the consequences of that politically for us. Um, because some might say that this insistence on such a multi-perspectival pluralism, um, in, a, in a way, just ends up producing an account that is, at least politically speaking, a mile wide and an inch thick. Now, I, I think I do understand and I appreciate and I respect what you're trying to go for here. Um, you cite uh, Colin White, for example, and you seem to hear, excuse me, share his view that because the material, the stuff, if you will, of social science doesn't really lend itself to epistemological certainty, that we're best advised to essentially cover all our bases, to use a baseball metaphor, and bring as many methodological tools to bear as we can. I accept that and I, I see the argument for it. What I worry about, however, is that the theories themselves, the tools in the toolbox, so to speak, they don't quite share that goal and, and not without due cause. For example, okay, like myself, I'm definitely more of a Marxist these days. It's just the way I'm going and, and uh, that's how the world makes sense to me. And there's a very strong chapter in your book on Marxism, which I'd like you to talk about. But before I do that, I guess I just sort of want to sort of flag what I see as, a, as, a, as something being at stake in this move that you're making here, which is that, you know, if I'm a Marxist, I guess I'm a Marxist from that sort of maybe old-fashioned viewpoint. Uh, Marx famously said it in the 11 Theses on Forbach, the, the philosophers have thus far only interpreted the world in various ways. The point, however, is to change it. <laughs> and, you know, that's a, a famous quote, but what, what it really is trying to give us over to is the idea that Marxism itself doesn't see itself as merely one theory among a potential many trying to all offer some contribution towards an overall project of building a scientific uh, sort of uh, assessment of the world. The point for Marxism is in fact to actually fundamentally attack the other theories and expose them essentially as bourgeois ideological projects that seek to hide, obfuscate the class interests that ultimately um, preserve the status quo. So it's a long question perhaps, and I hope you'll forgive me, but I'm just curious how you respond to the argument that this approach that you're taking here um, does in a, in a way not just defang Marxism. I mean, I just, I'm, I'm a Marxist, so I'm interested in that, but in, in a way it defangs all of them. And that for, for that actually, that very reason, paradoxically, even as you claim that the discipline has entered into this pluralistic phase and that no one theory these days is seen as having a sovereign voice or gaze, that you are actually 
kind of exerting your own sovereign gaze over these theories. So it's it's a it's a paradox there, and I just wonder, do you have a response for it? Thanks, Nick. That was a long question. <laughs> it was a long question, we, uh, but we I love asking you long questions because you're really smart and you've got <laughs> loads of great answers for long questions. Uh, that's a very interesting question uh, that uh, raises certain uh, uh, questions and concerns that uh, from a theoretical, even meta-theoretical sense uh, uh, is demanding. So let me try my best to uh, do justice to those concerns. Uh, let me start off by saying uh, that uh, compared to say, uh, the 70s and 80s, uh, the, the field of international relations theory has, uh, looking at the uh, type of journals and books coming out, has kind of come into a pluralist phase in which there is no longer a dominant of uh, one way of doing things, right? You can only do this method and look at these questions in order to publish or get a job in our field. That that That, that is not the case anymore. Uh, not only in the United States, but ac uh, across some of the uh, places where uh, international relations is being studied as a discipline. Now, having accepted that pluralism, which I, uh, which I, again, comparatively welcome uh, from a, a perspective that has uh, uh, seen all these different 70s and 80s and 90s arguments, I welcome that IR has uh, Led to a pluralist phase, so I I, uh, I I build on that in my, my advance of the eclectic pluralism phase. Now, the idea about eclectic pluralism really kicks in when uh, we do not herald one particular theory as the be-it-all sovereign gaze that any and all interpretations of political life should come from. Right. Eclecticism calls for flexibility, creativity, diversity, hybridization, and local and contextual fit. So accepting pluralism on the one hand and calling for an eclectic approach, uh, that is, let's pick and select uh, among those theories without necessarily mixing them due to the incommensurability problem to help us understand the world out there is what we advance. Uh, Part of uh, advancing this eclectic pluralist perspective comes from my own training. Uh, uh, as a PhD student, uh, 10 years ago, I worked with uh, uh, Rick Ashley, who introduced in the 80s uh, uh, post-structuralism and critical theory into international relations. And uh, part of the ethos that we're trying to do in advancing eclectic pluralism is that there are many different ways of looking at the world, right? And none of them is sovereign and universal in the sense that it is mm -hmm. the be-it-and-all explanation. Let me uh, take another step and suggest personally, we academics ourselves are have an infinite number of traces, to quote Edward Said, mm -hmm. uh, that mm -hmm. uh, make us who we are. And when we go to a setting we may employ one hat and take off that hat in our daily lives to employ another hat. For example, when I go to the grocery store, uh, I might put on a hat that says, okay, I'm, uh, I, 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 my values are about locally produced uh, food. I value organic stuff rather than corporate food, right? Then I, if I go to a car dealer and try to purchase a car, I put my rational choice hat on 
and engage with the car dealer in those terms. What's my cost and benefit? So we as academics employ these different hats in our everyday lives. To make it relevant to international relations theory, uh, if you remember, Rick, uh, those of your uh, uh, audience members who are old enough to remember, right around the uh, 2003 Iraq war, uh, around 700 academics in the field of international relations came together. Well. Yeah, I remember it well. Yeah, and they signed a, 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 a signed a piece of uh, not a declaration, but a memo that was mm-hmm. eventually published in, I believe, the New York Times. Mm-hmm, now, mm-hmm, the backgrounds mm-hmm. of these uh, scholars: there were realist scholars, feminist scholars, postcolonial scholars, Marxist scholars, coming from various different backgrounds and traditions, right? But they all came together to put their signature on a piece of document that was speaking the language of realpolitik. That document was called Scholars for a Sensible Foreign Policy. Right. And it was employing the language and logic of realpolitik in trying to convince the then Bush administration not to launch a war against Iraq because it was in the short, medium, long term against the interests of the United States. Now, just looking at that, if all of these various different scholars from different epistemological backgrounds can come together to sign a piece of document that employs realpolitik language, that shows that we kind of can employ practical reason, right, in speaking Mm -hmm. to so-called the state for a particular emancipatory and uh, a a critical uh, view on everyday life, Mm -hmm. in that case, the the launching of the Iraq war. Now, so that that's the ethos we employ. And uh, a purist or a monist that uh, heralds the monocultural language of heralding one theory as best mm-hmm. and all the others are wrong would probably dislike that. But I, uh, I come to believe that that is the way, uh, you know, for all intents and purposes, life works. So yeah. adopting several different theories uh, and assumptions to understand a puzzle in front of us, I think is a, welcome development yeah i mean i really uh and uh, paul i want to bring you in here in a minute but uh i i just uh feel that um even your answer there is is very helpful uh in so far as it um for me anyway uh just from a maybe a sociology of knowledge perspective i mean what you've really pointed to there i think is uh is is is, is at least a very real world example of how the politics of knowledge operates, that there are, uh, perhaps in this pluralistic age, even if I don't myself personally agree that IR has become very accepting of pluralism, I think there's still a lot of policing that's going on. And I I would even go so far as to say that I think some of the more um, constructivist approaches have become quite intolerant in some ways um uh in in but that's a different show for a different day um but i i think what that that uh, op-ed that you referred to in the new york times is a really great example of how political bargaining even works between theoretical paradigms sometimes to 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 make claims in the world when when the stakes are high enough if you will um so so i i find that a particularly powerful example that you've given there okay so um I want to kind of get you both now to think about how we can use this book and the arguments in it to think about where we are currently. Um, We're recording this in December 2020 at the end of a difficult year. There's been 
obviously a massive COVID pandemic. We've had environmental catastrophes in California. We've had, um, you know, a, a, a global awakening, I think, to the urgency of the struggle for black lives. Um, we've had a very high pressure U.S. election, uh, high stakes U.S. election, which um, has, it seems in the last days, finally come to its conclusion uh, as Donald Trump has now played out all his options for contesting legally the results of the November election. One of the big questions on the radar for foreign policy scholars and observers is where we go from here with Iran. Um, this is a dangerous transition phase, right? Um, we've had a change of guard in the White House. Iran is recently, justifiably, I would contend, upset about the assassination, arguably by Israel, although I'm not sure, um, of military scientist um, Mohsen uh, Fazrider. Forgive me if I'm not pronouncing um, that, that very well. Um, and we see uh, the Iranians passing a law recently that will oblige uh, Joseph Biden upon taking presidency effectively to renew the JCPOA quick. He, they're giving him a couple of weeks essentially to do it. The law also requires Iran to produce um, a, 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 a measure of enriched uranium. Now, with the time frame being short and this new sort of level of enrichment being on the table, um, it seems Iran is getting pushy here. On the other hand, I was listening to Scott Ritter, um, a former UNSCOM inspector on uh, the uh, YouTube the other day, and uh, he was saying, you know, don't, don't necessarily be too bedazzled by the drama and theatrics here, that Iran is basically signaling that it's very committed to, to, to bargaining and getting this thing back up and running. What should people know about Iran's decision today to resume enrichment to 20%? Some are calling this a new crisis. Well, the first thing we need to realize is that it's nothing new in terms of the Iranian program. Uh, prior to the 2015 um, the, the coming into force of the of the uh, JCPOA, Iran was enriching um, uranium to 20% for use in a uh, research reactor in Tehran that produced the medical isotopes. Um, they also need to understand that when we say Iran is uh, enriching to 20%. That doesn't mean that every centrifuge is enriching to 20%. It means that a selected cascade is doing a limited amount of enrichment to produce uh, uranium necessary to convert to fuel that can be used in this reactor. Other, the vast majority of the uh, centrifuges are enriching to the 3.5% necessary to produce fuel for uh, the nuclear reactors. Uh, the other thing that people need to understand is that um, this action by Iran is in conformity with the JCPOA. Not that the JCPOA permits this, but Articles 26 and 36 of the JCPOA permit Iran to walk back from its um, commitments under the JCPOA so long as other members to the agreement are not in compliance. The United States not only withdrew from it, uh, but threatened secondary sanctions against Europe, the, the French, the Germans, the European Union, if they did business with Iran and European economic interaction with Iran is a part of the JCPOA. Europe has not lived up to its obligations. Therefore, Iran has, since May of 2019, been gradually walking back. And what we what we see now 
is Iran is virtually back to ground zero. I still believe that um, they're allowing the additional protocol uh, enhanced inspections to take place, but this too is on the chopping block um, in the future if, uh, if the nations don't come into compliance. It's not a new crisis in terms that Iran is uh, you know, on, in a breakout scenario. It just means that the JCPOA is falling apart largely because of American, uh, you know, the, the American withdrawal and European non-compliance. Wanted to pass the mic over to you guys here and just ask each of you in turn if you, as we move to finish today, could could give me your assessment of where we stand with this crisis now and what you think is likely to come next based on your different theoretical approaches. Paul, maybe we can start with yourself and then turn to how. Sure. Well, I would say if you look at uh, the situation, you know, after uh, the assassination of the nuclear scientist Fariza Day, uh, there has been no retaliation uh, by Iran. Uh, so that uh, kind of points to what uh, Scott Ritter is arguing uh, in the YouTube video, is that uh, basically Iran is is willing to start back negotiations because when the Trump administration withdrew, that was a signal to Iran that, okay, we now need to up the stakes in order to bring back our partner, you know, that we had in this agreement, uh, but they didn't want to do it with the Trump administration, you know, because the Trump administration levied independent sanctions, uh, was willing to use force both in uh, uh, against Soleimani, but also against Fariza Day, you know, in bookending the year. Uh, and so what you see with, if you look at it from uh, the liberal institutionalist perspective, you know, this is an opportunity for uh, Iran uh, to show that it's willing to participate, but it's also worked with Russia and China separately. So it has multiple options. And so I don't necessarily see uh, Iran jumping right back into a a nuclear agreement because they're now going to leverage uh, the fact that the Trump administration withdrew and that it's not gonna be as easy for the United States to rejoin the nuclear agreement unless they provide uh, further concessions uh, to Iran, because Iran can just buck can buck the agreement again uh, as part of the prisoner's dilemma. They can defect to use the, well, the United. I think the United States, you mean, can buck the agreement again. Is that what you meant? Uh, yes. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> That's what. <laughs> but uh, I think if you look at it from a domestic politics perspective. You know, there's uh, you've got an aging uh, regime uh, of the grant, you know, both Mm -hmm. Grand Ayatollah Hamani uh, is in his 80s. There's going to be uh, a power play uh, in the Council of Guardians for who would succeed him. Um, The uh, Iranian Revolutionary Guard still uh, plays a predominant role within the politics of the country, is concerned about Iran's position as part of the regional security dynamic in the region. So I think these negotiations are going to be heavily influenced by the power plays that go on within uh, Iranian uh, domestic politics, but even also the anti-Iranian coalitions, uh, the Republicans in Congress, uh, AIPAC here in the United States, who are historically been against Iran. So I think a lot of the same dynamics will be at play if you look at it from a domestic politics situation or the three-level game situation. 
So it'll be, uh, it sounds like you're sort of saying to expect us to be back to something like the status quo in relatively short order, or, or am I putting words in your no, mouth? No, I, I, you're exactly right, Nick. It's uh, the status quo uh, will will remain for quite some time because I think Iran uh, is in the driver's seat at this point, uh, and it's been winning this battle for regional hegemony against Saudi Arabia, uh, in my opinion. Yeah. So uh, okay. they have okay. Okay. <laughs> they have everything they have everything to gain uh, from their positioning at this point. Okay, um, Hal, maybe I can pass the mic over to you now. I mean, um, you know, there's a political economy perspective here too, right? And um, uh, the Middle East, uh, I, I think, I accept Paul's uh, explanation and, and and view that you know there are these different sorts of um, levels at which this is playing out. I mean, you can even sort of see local bipolarity uh perhaps breaking down as 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 paul suggests iran is gaining the upper hand especially in syria but we haven't really spoken about israel either we haven't spoken about israel's special relationship with the united states i mean that that's surely going to be a factor playing out as we move into the next stage here um the saudis probably haven't played all their cards yet. Uh, any, any sort of observations or thoughts about the kind of challenges the Biden White House will be facing in the next couple of years? Uh, Nick, uh, let me, uh, uh, since you mentioned uh, that some of your uh, uh, listeners are come from a leftist orientation, let me try to situate my particular answer for what, what's happening and what might happen uh, from the perspective that I developed using uh, world systems theory. I think that this uh, this this chapter will really speak uh, uh, for those uh, listeners or even graduate students or undergraduate students who want to understand uh, how a historical materialist perspective on a contemporary issue might look like. Uh, in this uh, chapter, the, uh, I provide a political economic perspective that uh, I start off with uh, showing how IR theory lacks the theory of the state, and I uh, reading. Uh, Adam Smith, Karl Marx, Kautsky, and Lenin develop a theory of the state and the origin of state interests throughout the uh, uh, literature 18th, 19th century to bring it into uh, the early 20th century, Iran's integration into the world capitalist system. Iran would be a peripheral state uh, uh, using the language of world systems theory whose, uh, whose tax, whose task with a uh, division of labor in the world economy that is to supply uh, natural resources, right? Oil and gas. And up until the revolution, Iran fit well in this uh, world systems logic as a peripheral country that has close ties with core countries in Western Europe and the United States. Now, the revolution, of course, upset that. And ever since, uh, the economic elite who steer the foreign policies of core countries, by the way, uh, uh, really do not like the way uh, uh, Iran has been able to develop its own uh, capacity uh, to uh, develop a, a nuclear program and so on. But uh, from a, a global capitalist uh, perspective, let me bring it uh, for uh, into the 2010s to help us understand how we got into the JCPOA. Um, in this chapter, I don't present capitalist interests as unified using a, a, a concept called fractions of capital. I show how there are different competing 
capital interests within core countries. Uh, the pro-Iran deal cluster of capitalist interests, for example, wanted the realization of the JCPOA with a threefold aim, which was to diversify European energy supply so as not to be over-reliant on Russian natural gas. Second, to have a European oil companies such as Shell and Total extract oil from the Persian Gulf and sell it to the world markets. And third, to capitalize on the petrodollars of Tehran uh, by selling consumer goods and products to Iran, right? For example, German Daimler, French Peugeot Citroën struck deals with the Iranian partners to sell automobiles. German Siemens uh, agreed to deliver locomotive, locomotives and uh, American Air, uh, European Airbus was to export airplanes to Tehran and Boeing had its own deal. So these cluster of interests wanted the realization and, quote, normalization of Iran by bringing it back into the capitalist economy so trade could happen. And uh, they really pushed for this deal, right? And they kind of steered the political apparatus from the perspective of historical materialism to the realization of this deal. That said, capital interests uh, are diverging in that uh, uh, the anti-deal cluster of interests wanted to prevent the integration of uh, Iran into the world economy due to their own priority interests. This would be, uh, for example, uh, uh, some uh, major energy corporations would not want to see the development uh, of uh, Iranian natural resources and its introduction into the world economy as it would lower the prices. The prices of natural gas, for example, is an historic low, uh, uh, and uh, they don't they don't want to see Iran cutting into their profits. Another uh, uh, pipeline project that was produced, now it's shelved, was a, a pipeline that would exploit the Persian uh, natural gas resource, which is the largest in the world in terms of natural gas, being exploited and being uh, transferred into European markets through the building of a pipeline project. Now, that was also something that, uh, that some capital interests didn't want to see, as opposed to others. And there are other uh, interests, including diaspora, Iranian diaspora economic interests, uh, uh, that wanted to come out against the JCPOA deal. Now, within the Trump administration, they saw a, a, a political figure that could be rallied around, and they successfully lobbied to the shock of other capital interests uh, to uh, jettison the JCPOA deal. Uh, listeners might remember uh, French President Emmanuel Macron trying to salvage the deal to save uh, the Trump administration from scrapping the deal, heavily lobbied as uh, the, the, the major corporation, the, the largest major corporation in uh, France is Total, right? And kind of Advancing its interests, the political elite of France tried to lobby the United States government to not walk away from this deal. Now, with an incoming administration that we already uh, see to be more favorable to renegotiating with Iran or uh, uh, walking back into the JCPOA, JCPOA, we would see that those cluster of capital interests uh, would be really pushing uh, the, the, the political elite in the United States and Europe to uh, uh, have them sit back on the JCPOA deal and 
make business happen with the long-term goal being from uh, uh, from the perspective of the economic elite and political elite with PDT would be to integrate world, uh, Iranian economy into the world capitalist economic system in a way that has important exports going on and some form of economic integration that would, from the pers- optimistic perspective, uh, would uh, lead to some form of societal changes in Iran that would uh, make it not as an antagonistic to Western interests from the point of view of uh, that fraction of capital. Okay, brilliant. So um, you uh, then seem to also be concluding that you expect to return to the status quo more or less in the next couple of years. Uh, Am I putting words in your mouth? Yes, it seems that uh, the uh, economic interest to uh, integrate uh, uh, Iran into the capitalist economy, which which it already is, but not in terms of all the sanctions and all the free trade agreements that could be envisioned, those interests that want Iran to be integrated into the world economy would have would seem to have the upper hand as opposed to the uh, economic interests that were uh, heavily. Uh, 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 lobbying uh, the Trump administration to change its course of action with regard to the JCPOA. Very interesting. Okay, folks, well, you heard it here. Uh, Two predictions from our intrepid guests today, um, both more or less coming from different perspectives, but uh, offering, uh, perhaps in the spirit of this book, um, complementary arguments uh, for why we should expect a return to the status quo as we uh, move forward into the early years of the Biden administration. It will be very interesting. And perhaps, guys, we can have you back on the show uh, at some point to revisit um, the fate of the JCPOA in the coming year or two. Uh, It will be very interesting to see what happens. Um, I myself, I think I probably agree with you um, uh, uh, with these predictions. I I think they are the safe bet, but I I realize as well that... uh, you know, there's there's a there's a lot of potential irons in the fire here. Uh, there's potentially an election coming up next year in Israel. It's not clear. Um, there will probably be plenty of space for bellicose rhetoric and perhaps even actions uh, there. As Iran um, is 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 not always welcome in the fold of nations. We'll see how that goes, guys. I I, I can't thank you enough. I want to wish you a happy Christmas. Thanks for coming on the show. Any final words? Thank you, Nick. I appreciate uh, being allowed to come on and uh, discuss the book. That was a uh, a fun undertaking with Hal. So uh, thanks for having us. Oh, it was great to have you yeah. guys. On that note, I'd like to thank, uh, uh, and I'm sure Paul would also thank them. Uh, we've had wonderful graduate students and uh, graduate assistants who've helped us in uh, various uh, aspects of the book. Uh, this is a multi-year project uh, that we finally produced this book, but there uh, there were many great graduate assistants involved in helping us with uh, some of the empirical data, and we'd like to thank them. Jake, That's great. Here. That's great. Yeah, here, here to that. Good. Great book, guys. Really enjoyed it. So thank you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thanks so much, Nick. All right, lads. Have a good one. I'll talk to you soon. Yeah. Yeah, you too. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Take care, Bye. 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 Bye.